That was great. Can you imagine how well we'll be singing that when we get to Revelation chapter 5? And we will have the lion and the lamb in front of us then, and that'll be, that'll be fantastic. Let's join together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for all your many, many blessings, your mercies that were new this morning. We've been enjoying them all day. Thank you for your faithfulness. And thank you for the picture that we're about to embark on now as we see a revelation of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's turn together to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to introduce the book tonight and also look at the first three verses. We studied the book of Revelation about 16 years ago. And Revelation is one of those books that you've got to repeat more often than other books because the events keep changing and changing. And as we look around in our world today, things become more and more real as we see taking place right before us many of the things that are, are going to be recorded in the Scripture. So Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Book of Revelation. It's Winston Churchill who said one time that Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. I think you have an idea of what he's trying to say. They were pretty hard to figure out. Well, that's what a lot of people and even Christians, how they view the book of Revelation in the Bible. It's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. They can't understand it. They despair of studying it. They think that there's so much symbolism in it that they're never going to work their way through it. But I believe that that's not really the way that it should be. But for 18 centuries, the mysteries of the book of Revelation were not studied very much. It wasn't until the 19th century that there was renewed interest. And then all of a sudden, people started to study the book, and a lot of books were written about Revelation at that particular time. In fact, they began to do that so intensely, almost as many books have been written about it now as have been written about dieting and exercise. And you know that there's a lot about diet and exercise book of the Revelation is filled with imagery, it's filled with symbolism, and for that reason it scares many people away. Some seminaries avoid it or give it very little attention even today. Some of the great commentators refuse to write commentaries on the book, and you would be surprised if I were to mention some of the names of those who never did a commentary on Revelation, but they did on almost every other book in the Scriptures. But I don't think we need to be intimidated by the reluctance of others to study the book it shouldn't be something to keep us away from it. But we do need in all humility to ask the Lord for his help. We can't afford to be arrogant with this. We can't afford to be overly dogmatic. But we could be confident as we ask the Lord to help us through this study that he'll give us the guidance that we do need. I think you'll find that it is an absolutely fascinating story. It's a thrilling account of the climax of all of history. Very few people know anything really about it. And that's really only the secondary part of the book of Revelation. We'll see that in a moment. There is an immense purpose behind the book of Revelation, and it's not all having to do with the future. 
We'll see that in just a moment. Book of Revelation can be understood as a grand central station of the whole Bible. Nearly every symbol in it is used somewhere else in the Bible, but it has its final fulfillment or has its explanation in Revelation. You can see everything coming together into this one hub, the book of Revelation. And the symbols can be understood. We don't have to have guesswork to see what's going on. Uh, we need to study carefully and compare Scripture with Scripture, but it can be done. Where Genesis is a book of beginnings or commencement, Revelation is a book of consummation or fulfillment. It is perfect to end the Scriptures, just as Genesis was perfect to begin the Scriptures. And you can see this. In Genesis, we study the commencement of heaven and earth. Sometimes when we think about this time of year, we think about graduation or commencement, and we think, well, that's the end. No, commencement is the beginning. And so we have the commencement of heaven and earth, and we go back to Genesis 1-1 to see that. In Revelation, we see the consummation of heaven and earth. We see heaven and earth passing away, and we see a new heaven and a new earth, and we see a new Jerusalem. In Genesis, we see the entrance of sin, and we see the curse. In Revelation, we see the end of sin and the end of the curse. You can begin to see already it's going to be a happy ending for those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Genesis, we see the dawn of Satan and his activities, beginning with chapter 3. We see the temptation of human beings and human beings succumbing to that temptation. Revelation, we see the doom of Satan and his activities. By the time we get there, you'll be almost ready to cheer when we see Satan getting defeated, thoroughly trounced, and sent to where he belongs. In Genesis, the tree of life is relinquished. In Revelation, the tree of life is regained. In Genesis, death makes its entrance. In Revelation, death makes its exit. And we're not sorry to see it go at all. In Genesis, sorrow begins. And in Revelation, sorrow is banished. Do you know what I think? I think it would be great if we all turned to Revelation chapter 21, even though we're in chapter 1, just to see a little bit of the happy ending. Some of you need a break today. Some of you need to see these great words that are here before us. Let's pick up in Revelation 21, and let's, let's go to the first verse. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You often hear someone saying, if you could only read the final chapter, we can. We read the final chapter, that's actually the next to the final chapter in Revelation, but we see the end of the story. 
And it truly does have a happy ending. The Bible's not complete without its last book. And all of the books are dependent on each other. The Bible without Revelation is like a mystery book without the last chapter. Or a baseball game where you don't get to hear what happened in the bottom of the ninth. We're better able to understand Revelation now than our predecessors were able to. In 1903, C.I. Schofield wrote these words. The book of Revelation is so written that as the actual time of these events approaches, the current events will unlock the meaning of the book. Now, a lot of people have thought that there have been a lot of current events over the centuries. But it's quite possible that this will be the time when even more of them are coming true before our very eyes. Isn't that what Daniel chapter 12, verses 9 and 10 is telling us? Here's what it says there. He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand but those who are wise will understand. Well, let's get from the first verse the proper title of this book that we're about to study. I believe the proper title is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. If you have an ESV Bible in front of you, ESV calls it The Revelation to John. The NIV simply calls it Revelation. King James Version calls it The Revelation of St. John the Divine. I don't think he would have cared for that. John wouldn't have a whole lot. Where do I get the title? The Revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, we read it a moment ago. How does it start out? It starts out the Revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how it starts out on the ESV, the NIV, the New American Standard, King James Version, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the Amplified, and a whole lot of others. Starts out the Revelation of Jesus Christ. So I don't see any real need to improve on that because he's the one who's really going to be revealed. So keep in mind, and and maybe this is new, a new thought, book of Revelation is not primarily a book about the end times or eschatology. I love the way that John MacArthur puts it in his commentary in the introduction, his commentary on this book. He brings it out very forcibly, as often he will do. I've got two long quotes tonight. Uh, This is one of them. So brace yourselves. And uh, tell yourself, I am going to, I'm not going to wander during this because this is very significant. <clears throat> Revelation is a rich source of truth about eschatology or the end times. In fact, it contains more details about the end times than any other book of the Bible. Revelation portrays Christ's ultimate triumph over Satan, depicts the final political setup of the world system and describes the career of the most powerful dictator in human history, the final Antichrist. It also mentions the rapture of the church, and he says in chapter 3, verse 10, and describes the seven-year time of tribulation, including the three and one-half years of the great tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the climactic battle of human history, Armageddon, the thousand-year earthly reign of Jesus Christ, the final judgment of unrepentant sinners, the great white throne judgment, and the final state of the wicked in hell, the lake of fire, and the redeemed in the new heaven and new earth. But the book of Revelation is preeminently the revelation of Jesus Christ. It describes him by many titles, including 
the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the living one, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, the Son of God, the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, the one who is holy, who is true, the holder of the key of David, who opens, excuse me, and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the Lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb of God, the Lord holy and true, the One who is called faithful and true, the Word of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Christ, Messiah, ruling on earth with His glorified saints, and Jesus, the Root and Descendant of David, the bright morning star. That's a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get to see all of them in their context. And the context also including what's happening at the end times. But it is a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ as we will see together. Do me a favor, this is a little picky, but please try not to refer to the book as Revelations. A lot of people do, they'll refer to it as Revelations. It's not Revelations. The word is singular. It is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Greek word for revelation is the word apocalypsis, from which we get our word apocalypse. It means an appearing, showing forth, a disclosure, a manifestation, a coming, an unveiling. That's the revelation or the apocalypse of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all of those things for him. It's to expose in full view some of the things that were hidden before, that were veiled or secret about the Lord Jesus. It's like if you can imagine a platter with a dome-shaped lid on it. It's Thanksgiving. I don't know whether you have ham or turkey or something else. It's when the dome lid is taken off and everybody gets to see what's under it. It's the unveiling, and it's worth waiting for. Or you could picture it this way. It's during a wedding, and the bride comes down, and then all of a sudden, the veil is taken away. Very, very significant moment for the groom, but everybody else likes to talk about that as well. It's the secret message that is finally decoded. It's that aha moment. Now I see it. It's the cup... Excuse me. It's just a mild case of tuberculosis and it'll go away. It's the covering removed in a dramatic flourish from a long-anticipated portrait. New Testament, the word occurs exclusively in the religious sense of a divine disclosure. Why must Christ be revealed? This is my second long quote, and this is by W.A. Criswell. And I'm going to ask Michael Nelson if he would come up and read it. He's not prepared to do this, but would you come up and read this for me, please? Why must Christ be revealed? (laughs) Tell me you got it. Do you really? (laughs) Go ahead. This until it stops. The first time our Lord came into this world, he came in the veil of our flesh. His deity was covered over with his manhood. His Godhead was hidden by his humanity. 
Just once in a while did his deity shine through, as on the Mount of Transfiguration, or as in his miraculous works. But most of the time, the glory, the majesty, the deity, the wonder and the marvel of the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, were veiled. These attributes were covered over in flesh, in our humanity. He was born in a stable. He grew up in poverty. He knew what it was to hunger and to thirst. He was buffeted and beaten and bruised. He was crucified and raised up as a felon before the scoffing gaze of the whole earth. The last time that this world saw Jesus was when it saw him hanging in shame, misery, and anguish upon the cross. He later appeared to a few of his believing disciples, but the last time that this unbelieving world ever saw Jesus was when it saw him die as a malefactor, as a criminal crucified on a Roman cross. That was a part of the plan of God, a part of the immeasurable, illimitable grace and love of our Lord. By his stripes we are healed. But then, is that all the world is ever to see of our Savior, dying in shame on a cross? No, it is also a part of the plan of God that someday this unbelieving, this blasphemous, this godless world shall see the Son of God in his full character, in glory, in majesty, in the full-orbed wonder and marvel of his Godhead. Then all men shall look upon him as he really is. They shall see him holding in his hands the title deed to the universe, holding in his hands the authority of all creation in the universe above us, in the universe around us, and in the universe beneath us, holding this world and its destiny in his pierced and loving hands. Thank you, Michael. There's a glass of water for you on the table over there. <laughs> if I need to do that again, is there anybody else who's struggling that I can call on you? For I knew Michael would read that with feeling, and I appreciate that. So what we're saying is don't be intimidated by revelation. Far from hiding the truth, it reveals the truth. And it tells us all about the Lord Jesus in a way that we haven't seen him revealed before. And the people of that time didn't really see him revealed that way. But we get a chance to do that from God's perspective, from God's word. So when we talk about the purpose of the book, the title of the book, it's a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's get beyond the proper title and let's go to the the purpose of the book. And um, why was Jesus revealed in the way he was revealed? What is the context all around it? Well, there was a reason. It says God's purpose is to show his servants what must soon take place. So God revealed Jesus the way he did so that we would know what was coming. He wanted us to be able to know what was ahead. Here is real encouragement. God wants us to understand the book. And for so many who've been frightened away from it, God wants us to understand the book of Revelation. That's why he gave it to us. He wants us to have insight into the end times. So this book is a revealing to his servants of what he wants them to know because he wants them to do some things along the way. Who are his servants? They're all of God's people. And that term is used 11 times in Revelation. Servant or doulos, a special kind of slave. One who served out of love and devotion to his master. So we can all be included in that. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants 
That would include you if you want to be numbered among the doulos, if you want to be numbered among those who are devoted to the serving of God, then we certainly would be included in that. Notice it says these things must take place. It is absolutely necessary. The divine plan is not a maybe. It's not conditioned on anything else. The things in this book are going to happen. And we can take great encouragement in that because we know that we're on the side that's going to be winning. But what does it mean that these things will soon take place? That's something that some people get very cynical about because they say, if this is going to take place soon, they've been saying that for centuries. So is this one of those situations where we're we're to say one day with the Lord is is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day and so it could go on forever and ever and still they can say it's going to happen soon. I don't think that's the way we're supposed to understand this. But for some, soon can be a very relative time period. One writer says this, no matter how many millennia pass before these events occur, in the light of eternity, they will seem soon. Well, in the light of eternity, anything would seem soon. But there's another way of looking at it, too. The word for soon in the Greek is the word tachy, T-A-C-H-E-I. It's from which we can see the word tachometer, an instrument to measure velocity, the amount of revolutions per minute. We see the word in Luke 18.8, it's translated quickly or speedily. And the point is often made that when it says these things are going to be happening soon, it means they're going to be happening happen speedily. And when they occur, when things begin to go, they're going to go in a hurry. And that's where some people will come in translating that as well. Same concept expressed in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. The end will come, and when it does, it will be swift and it will be sudden. It will be like a thief. So you get the idea the end is coming soon, and it could very well be at any time because others feel that the soon here leads us simply to the idea of it being imminent, that it's something that it could, could occur at any moment. It's better to translate, they would say, and tachai as soon in light of the words, the time is near in verse 3. So in eschatology, in apocalyptics, the future is always viewed as imminent without the necessity of intervening time. Imminence describes an event possible any day, impossible no day. So the events here, if they begin with the rapture of the Lord Jesus coming to take us to be with him, if that's imminent, that means there's nothing stopping it from occurring. Could happen tonight. Some of you are wondering about tomorrow and the new work week, and you're stressed out about it. You may not get there. You may not need to. We may all be in heaven with the Lord Jesus. I certainly believe the New Testament teaches the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we're talking about these things are going to, the time is near, these things are going to happen soon, they're going to take place, uh, could mean several things, but I do believe that uh, could also mean all of them at once, that it's imminent, that when they start to happen, they're going to happen in a hurry, and it certainly could be very soon. Process of making it known. This is very significant as well, and we see this in in the early verse. Now we see it in verses 1 and 2. There's a chain of progression in getting God's revelation to us. And it starts out very well. It was God to Jesus 
to an angel, to the Apostle John, and then to us. That's a pretty good chain when we're talking about God the Father, God the Son, entrusting it to an angel, giving it to John so that it can be recorded in writing for us, and the us again are the servants, those who are willing to be sold out for the Lord Jesus Christ. The word angel, incidentally, occurs 71 times in the book of the Revelation. Revelation contains one out of every four references to angels in the Bible. So if you're ever studying angels, Revelation's a great place to come to. You've got a quarter of the times that angels are mentioned are going to be in that book. They're very significant in the worship of God, in the revelation of God's Word, and also they carry a heavy hand. They're very significant in the execution of the judgments in the earth. We'll find angels in every chapter in Revelation except chapter 4 and chapter 13. Now you'll notice in referring to his vision as the Word of God, John emphasizes his continuity with the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament. The Word of God spread throughout the the entire Old Testament and then into the New Testament with the apostles. The Word of God is mentioned eight more times in Revelation. And in chapter 19, verse 13, Jesus is identified as the Word of God. The whole book takes a high view of God's inspired Word. Not only does it claim inspiration for itself, it's estimated this, 278 out of its 404 verses allude to the inspired Old Testament Scriptures. So when we're talking about the Word of God, we're talking about an integrated Word of God. The Old Testament, the New Testament, all together, it's still God's Word, and it's all coming together now on the caboose of the Scriptures as we look at the book of Revelation. Which John is this? Who is the penman? Well, the John who's the penman of this is the Apostle John, and we understand that. We understand that it's it's very clear because... His name is mentioned four times in the book, three times in chapter 1, one of which we've already read. And then at the very end, chapter 22, it's mentioned again in verse 8. It's interesting because the early church fathers, and you may not be familiar with all of these names, some of them you may be, Justin Martyr, who's one, who lived in Ephesus, and Ephesus is going to be one of the the cities that gets a letter when we get to chapter 2. Justin Martyr lived there. Irenaeus lived in Smyrna. Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, Hippolytus, Victorinus, etc., unanimously affirm that this was John, the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve apostles, the author of the Gospels and Epistles of John. It always seems, though, that there are some who will take an indisputable fact of Scripture. They'll come along and they'll say, no, wait a minute, that's not really true. So about the third century, there were some questions about who really wrote it. They didn't think John did largely due to a difference in style and vocabulary. And wouldn't you think there would be a difference in style and vocabulary between the Gospel of John and the Epistles and the book of Revelation? No matter what else anybody had written, it was going to be different than the book of Revelation. But we believe that it was John himself who wrote those words, and we believe that they were written in about 95 or 96 A.D. That's something else that is clearly substantiated. There's a much earlier date defended by some. They'll say about 25 years earlier than that. But it's difficult to reconcile the earlier date with the witness of those early church fathers. 
For example, Irenaeus wrote about John. He explained that the apocalypse was seen by John at the end of the Roman emperor Domitian's reign. Well, he reigned from 81 to 96, and so if it was the end of his reign, that 95 fits right in there, and 95, for a variety of other reasons, has been the one most posited down through church history. Irenaeus was a pupil of Polycarp, who was a pupil of John. So that gets handed down, and we believe accurately. So if it was during the end of the Roman emperor Domitian's reign, just to give you a flavor for what's going on at this particular time and understanding why John is in exile, understanding why persecution is something that is spoken of at that time. Domitian has been described as a moral catastrophe of a man. He was also physically unimpressive. He was said to have some type of a a wart on his forehead that he would scratch open and it would bleed and he was very sensitive because he happened to be bald and his legs were spindly and he had a protruding belly and he was also a man on top of the physical things that he didn't particularly like. He also once left his brother to die. His brother was still living, still breathing, but um, he needed help, but he left him to die. He seduced his own niece who was married to someone else, had her abort his child, which led to her death. And um, I could go on and on about him, but he insisted on being addressed as Lord and God. That was Domitian. That was the emperor who was active at this particular time. Now, there's something that's very, very significant coming up, too. In verse 3, there is a promised blessing. What an incentive for our study of Revelation. Now, look at this. This is, this is something that I think is phenomenal. Blessed is the one who reads, and it even says who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's why you will never see me on a Sunday night asking Michael to come up and read this scripture, because I want that blessing. <laughs> I want the blessing of reading that aloud. He can read other things, but not that part of it. But the good news is, it's blessed the one who reads the words aloud, probably the one who would read publicly at that time, since probably only one copy per church was available at the beginning. That means you can read it not aloud and get the same blessing. And if you don't want to do that, it also goes on to say, blessed are those who hear the words, and we'll we'll talk about that in a moment. But blessed means more than happy. It describes the favorable circumstances that God has put a person in. And it's the first of seven beatitudes in the book. We'll see it over and over again, where there'll be blessing to certain ones. And we won't take time to go over them individually now, but when we come to them, we will. Blessed are also are those who hear the words, but not just the curiosity seekers, not those who want to be entertained, not those who want to merely be informed by reading the book and they want to know what's happening in the future, not those who want to treat it academically. But it says the blessing is to those who hear and keep what is written in it. And so the promised blessing, it's to the one who reads, it's to those who hear and then keep what is written in it. That's another way of saying those who obey what is here. And there will be a lot to obey, particularly in the earlier chapters, in chapters 2 and 3 when we look at the letters to the seven churches. This is so important that Jesus repeats it in Revelation 22, verse 7, in case anybody missed it here at the beginning. 
The final question, if there is a guaranteed promise of blessing, then why do so few people study the book? Why do so few people study this book? And I believe because here we find the doom of Satan recorded. Here we find that he's going to be thrown into the lake of eternal fire. He hates this book. And and despite whether anybody wants to believe in the reality of Satan, the influence of Satan, the oppression of satanic or evil forces, uh, I believe it, and the Bible teaches that. He hates this book, and he's great at discouraging people from studying it. Did you ever wonder why this particular book is the most controversial book of the Bible? Why Christians can't agree on its interpretation? And why people are scared off from studying it? I don't wonder. Satan's tried to get preachers and church members to keep the book closed. He's succeeded, but he hasn't succeeded here. I want to encourage you to read your way through this book. I want to encourage you to be here every Sunday night that you possibly can be here. Do you know why? Because there's a blessing for you in that. There's a huge blessing, and there's a blessing for all of us. And even if we weren't studying Revelation, I'd say the same thing. But here specifically, the blessing that is guaranteed. We need to rely on the Holy Spirit for illumination. We also need to rely on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for protection. Because if there seriously will be um, an influence to try to keep us from here, uh, there'll be a lot of reasons that would try to keep you away from here on a Sunday night. But that's where the blessing is. We're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ on display in great glory. Do you know what? We're also going to see God the Father revealed in all His glory and majesty as well. We're going to see Him described as holy and true and omnipotent and wise and sovereign and eternal. So we're going to have many, many blessings simply by seeing God the Father and His Son revealed to us. A young boy was playing in his grandmother's house near a large grandfather's clock. Noontime was approaching, and when both hands of the old timepiece reached twelve, the chimes began to ring. As he always liked to do, the boy counted each gong as it sounded. Anybody here do that? I do. In the lounge, I count every time I hear that that gong. So he's counting each one this time. However, something went wrong with the clock's inner mechanism. Instead of stopping at 12, it kept right on chiming. 13, 14, 15, 16 times. The boy couldn't believe his ears. He jumped to his feet and ran into the kitchen shouting, Grandma, Grandma, it's later than it's ever been before. He expressed a real truth in that. Because it is. It's later than it's ever been before. And I think that's one thing we can get everybody to agree on. It's later than it's ever been before. The history of the world and the days allotted to us on God's calendar of events, no matter how we dissect the future, it's later than it's ever been before. It's comforting and that's sobering at the same time. Are you ready for his return? If he comes back for his own, are you a part of that? Are you one of those servants that is addressed here because you've given yourself wholly to serve the Lord as his bond servant, as his slave? Are you one of those that he's writing this for to encourage? Or perhaps are you one of those that this is written in order to alarm you, to scare you, to let you understand that this future is going to be fantastic for some, but it's going to be absolutely abysmal for others? 
So I would encourage each one absolutely to be sure you're ready for his return. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that it is later than it's ever been before, and that much we're certain of. We don't know when the Lord Jesus is coming back again. We just know that he is, and we know that we need to be ready, and we know that we've been warned in your word. So thank you for the blessedness of that promise, and thank you also for the awesomeness of that warning. And thank you for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ that we look forward to as we see him revealed in all of those things that were mentioned, in all of his power and glory, and you once again in all your holiness and your truth and your power, your wisdom, your sovereignty, your eternality, all those things about you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.